So as he said, um, my name is Jarrett, and I've been coming here to River City for about four years now. I first came here because of the barn wood and the cool fancy windows, but that's not why I stayed. Um, in the summer of 2017, uh, we as a church went through Psalm 23, and just Psalm 23. So every week there would be a verse or half a verse preached, and I thought that was really strange um, because I grew up in a church that we, we kind of just went to the Bible um, because we had to. And what this was communicating to me was that we actually believed this is the Word of God and that the Word of God has the power to change our lives and that the Holy Spirit has the power to change our lives too. And so it is, uh, when I, as I share that, it's my hope and my prayer that this morning that the Word of God would speak to us all, it would penetrate our hearts, and that God would speak to us because the power is in His Word and not ours. So, yeah, um, we're not in Psalm 23 this morning, we're in Psalm 8, which is a part of our summer sermon series. And Psalm 8, it doesn't have a specific context or date given to us, but we do know it's written by David and that it is a hymn of praise. So it's meant to give us reason to rejoice. Um, And most of the Psalms up to this point have been about David fleeing from persecution and pleading with God to deliver him. And this just goes to show that David is like us and that he's human. He He had times in his life where he was rejoicing in God and he had times where he was crying out to God. Um, And so the original hearers of this would have rejoiced in God when they heard it. The Israelites would have. And I believe it can give us reason to rejoice in God too this morning. So with that said, uh, I'm going to read Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I was 12, my family went on a cruise vacation, and we went on a boat called the Oasis of the Seas. Um, it is one of the biggest cruise ships in the world, and this boat was awesome. It had a movie theater, it had an ice rink, and like it really needed it, it had a park in the middle of the boat. 
Um, this boat was huge. But I remember as we left the port, my feelings about the size of the ship changed. Because once we got out into the ocean, and all you could see was ocean in any direction, the boat felt like I was in a lifeboat. And the waves would be crashing, and the wind would pick up and be howling. And suddenly, I felt like I was being caught up in something bigger than me, something mightier than me. And I think we can feel that way with God, too, sometimes. We can be so overwhelmed by the size of God. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever come to question, who am I that a God like this would be mindful or care for me? But like a kid staring out at the ocean, I think we can easily fall into two traps. The first trap is that we're so in despair about the size of the ocean that we can't even look at it. I don't know if any kids actually do that, but you get the point. And then the other trap would be that the kid looks out at the great majestic ocean and he just sort of shrugs off like it's nothing and then he checks his Instagram. But what if instead of either of those, the kid was able to look out on the ocean and to just be in awe, to be able to marvel at the size of it? And that's where I get my main point for this morning. My main point is that the Lord is majestic, so marvel in Him. If you only remember one thing that I say, let it be that, that the Lord is majestic, so marvel in Him. I know marvel is only associated with superheroes in 2020, so I googled it, and it actually means to be filled with wonder or astonishment, which is fine for Iron Man, But for our purposes this morning, to marvel will mean to fearfully be filled with joyous wonder or astonishment. And the reason why I chose that wording is because in the text, we see the size of God compared to people. And that should strike up some holy fear in us. But at the same time, like we said earlier, this is a hymn of praise. This is meant to give us reason to rejoice in God and who he is and his care for us. And so with both of those things being said, my two supporting points are that the Lord is majestic in creation, which will be in verses 1 through 4, and the Lord is majestic in Christ, which will be verses 5 through 9. In verse 1, it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The first thing I want to point out is that this psalm starts and it ends with that same refrain. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And whether we're talking about Hebrew poetry, a Taylor Swift song, or anything else, If it starts and it ends with the same thing, that's probably the main point. So, if the Lord is majestic, what does that mean? What does it mean for the Lord to be majestic? Well, the word for majestic in Hebrew can mean a couple things. First, 
It can mean for something to be excellent, famous, or, or noble. And that's pretty close to what we think of when we think of majestic. It's something that's good. But another interpretation of the word majestic is something that's large, powerful, or literally speaking, wide. Which is kind of funny if you think about it as, O Lord, our Lord, how wide is your name in all the earth. But think of it like this. You're standing in front of that cruise ship as a kid. And this boat is so big, you can't even see the whole thing without turning your head. And you get out into the middle of the ocean, and you realize this boat is not that big. And then you think about that ocean on a planet within a solar system, and that planet of Earth is just a dot. And the solar system, in comparison to our universe and our galaxy, is just a dot. Creation is so large and grand. And so what I think the text is saying is that the size of creation is meant to point us to the even grander size of the Creator. At this point, you might be thinking, okay, Jarrett, God is big, so what? Why do I care? I'm glad you say that. It says in a verse of the hymn, This is my Father's world. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. So the so what of God being truly majestic or wide in all the earth is that we have reason to rejoice. We can rejoice because though the wrong seems oft so strong in our lives, God's the ruler yet. He is bigger than your biggest problems. In light of that, what are your biggest worries and fears right now? How does the majesty of God speak to what you're going through? The whole of verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And what we have here is something called a mirrorism, which a technical definition is the use of two contrasting words to describe the whole of something. But if you're like me, you like examples more than definitions. So if you're going to describe a group of people, you could say the young and the old, and it would mean everyone. Or if you're at a Bison game, you could say the Bison fans and the losing team fans, because they win every time. <laughs> you can talk to me about that after the service. Um, but anyways, we have the heavens and the earth. And to Adam, uh, Adam, oh my gosh, David, who's writing this, to David, the heavens and the earth would mean everything in all of creation. It would mean every molecule, speck of dust in existence. And where is the glory of God? It's above it. So can I get a head nod if you think the glory of God is important to God? I think so too. I think in order for God to put his glory above everything in creation... 
And there's a lot of good stuff in creation. The glory of God must be supremely important to God. Glory in Hebrew literally means weight or heaviness. So it's like it's saying God's weightiness or his worthiness is above everything in creation. And one of the problems with that is that we were created to know God and to know his glory. And so if we're in creation, we're beyond him. He's beyond us, rather. And this is one of the reasons why Jesus had to come. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory is above the heavens as it rightly should be because he is holy. He's set apart from sin and anything that's imperfect. But we're not. We sin. We mess up. And so in order to know God, to know his glory like we were made to do, that's why we need Jesus. He is the mediator. He is the means by which we can know God. In verse 2, it says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. How many of you are wondering what the babies and infants mean? I, I know I was wondering that. Um, I think the babies and infants, it, it could mean two things at least. First, it could mean babies and infants. Uh, Jesus means, uh, Jesus quotes this in Matthew 21, and he's talking about childlike faith. And so, but another interpretation is that it could also mean Israel. Because the Israelites, the original people that sang this song, they would have seen Israel being like weak, helpless children surrounded by mighty Gentile nations. In any case, we see that God is defeating his enemies through someone or something that seems weak and helpless. Does that sound familiar? God has a repeated history of using weak people to show his glory. Because as we said earlier, God's glory is the most important thing to him. And so he's all about letting the world see it. And through weakness, God's glory is most clearly perceived. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. In other words, in order for God's glory to be displayed... He uses weak vessels like jars of clay. We can see this idea played out in verse 2 because when it says out of the mouth of babies and infants, it could also say out of the mouth of Moses, a profuse stutterer, 
God established strength to lead a nation out of slavery. It could say, out of the mouth of David, the guy who's writing this, God established strength to defeat enemies like Goliath. It could say many people from the Bible. But ultimately, out of the mouth of Jesus, a boy from Nazareth, God established strength to defeat sin and death. This whole idea of God using weakness to defeat his enemies in order for his glory to be seen, it is crystallized in Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has the greatest display of strength ever. Because he's defeating the most horrible enemy of sin and death. And from this victory of God, we see the majesty of God. We see how wide he has to be in order to cover the gap between our sin and his glory. Can I get an amen? Do you believe Jesus is majestic enough or wide enough to cover your sin? What lies prevent you from believing this? Allow me to encourage you all that Jesus is majestic enough He is majestic enough to defeat your sin, and we can marvel in him. If you are a believer in Christ, although there will be struggles in this life, let me assure you that Jesus has stilled the enemy. He has defeated the enemy of sin in your life once and for all. However, if you're not a believer in Jesus, or you don't know where you stand with Jesus, I lovingly urge and plead with you through repentance and through faith. Put your trust in him because Jesus is the only way to still the enemy. In verse 3 it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. First, I want to emphasize the work of your fingers. It took work to create the universe. It's not like God was tired by the end of creation and he could hardly do it. But we have to acknowledge that the task of creating everything as we know it, including you and me, was carried out by God. That's no easy task. For example, it's been discovered by astronomers that if the strength of gravity in our universe were stronger or weaker by one part in a trillion, trillion, trillion. It's a very small difference in gravity. The entire universe would collapse on itself. A non-believing astronomer, George Greenstein, says, nothing in all of physics explains why its fundamental principles should conform themselves so precisely to life's requirements. And this only gives validation to what Psalm 8 is already saying. Psalm 8 is saying that the heavens are the work of his fingers and that he set the stars in place. The literally impossible conditions 
for you and I to be alive are the result of one thing, God. Can I get an amen? In this passage, we also see a really good example of what it means to marvel in God. David is filled with joy when he looks at the night sky. We can tell because of the way he describes it. He says, The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. It's like he's complimenting God on a job well done. However, in the very next verse, he asks, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? We should note that the Hebrew Hebrew being used here for man would imply all people, male and female. And so, we can see that David's rejoicing in the night sky, but he's starting to feel small as he gets this picture of who God is. He's like the kid on the cruise ship. He was beginning to realize how big God truly is. And it led him towards despair. But there's hope. Because the way David asked the question, it implies that he knows that God does care. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care The thought is, God cares, and God is mindful. The marveling is at who God is, how majestic God is, and how we pale in comparison. David was recognizing his unworthiness. And so from this this picture of what it means to marvel in God... I invite you all to consider what are some ways you can marvel in God? Is there a specific part of creation or a means of his care that is significant to you? So to summarize everything we've said to this point, and I promise that my second point is not as long as my first point, The Lord is majestic in creation. He's majestic through the size and the scale of creation. He's majestic through the enemies he defeats in creation, namely sin and death through his only son, Jesus. He's majestic through the beauty and the complexity of creation that is evidence of the one true God. And from this overwhelmingly majestic picture of God that's being painted, we begin to see a problem. We pale in comparison to the God being described. Therefore, a gap exists between us and God. A gap we cannot fill on our own with our own efforts. And this is why we need Jesus. Which brings me to my next and my last main point, that the Lord is majestic in Christ. The text in verse 5 says, Yet you... I just want to pause there for a moment. 
Because what we have is there's a problem in verse 4. There's a problem being drawn out that God is holy and we are not. And the solution in verse 5, it starts with, yet you, God. It doesn't say, yet man or yet human beings devised a program and they got all their act together. It doesn't say that. It says, yet you, yet God. He is at the center of the solution. If you're looking for hope in yourself, you won't find it. God is the solution, and his solution is grace or undeserved favor. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So a question I have is, who is the him in these verses? You have given him, you've crowned him. And there's two meanings. First, like we said earlier, the man or the son of man means all of us. All human beings made in the image of God were blessed in these ways that are being described. But ultimately, the better him is Jesus. He is the one that's fulfilling this great plan that God has laid out. But first, what does this mean for all humans, even non-believers? God has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. It's not clear, and commentators disagree, whether heavenly beings means angelic beings or God himself. But whatever the case, we are high up there, guys. Like, a little bit lower is high, stinking high. We're very blessed. At the beginning, we talked about how God's glory is above the heavens. It showed his worthiness of honor and dignity. And we're crowned with that same stuff. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. His glory is a crown given to you. That's why he gave human beings dominion over everything in the earth. We don't have time to cover verses 7 and 8 specifically, but that's what those are demonstrating, that everything in the earth is given to human beings as God's gracious gift. And God did this, why? It goes back to his glory. God finds his glory supremely important. And he's glorified by creation reflecting how good he is. That's the plan. That human beings would reflect God's glory. How he rules over the universe rightly and justly. However, we don't do this. We sin. And we don't fulfill God's plan the way he wanted. And one of the ways that we sin is we actually refuse to honor the image of God in each other. We make distinctions based on race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. We say, I believe these people are made in the image of God, but I don't know about them. And as Christians, 
We can say things like that and still believe that we love God. But the Bible says otherwise. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You cannot marvel in the majesty of God's creation if you refuse to honor the image of God in other human beings. The hardest people to love in your life, think of that person or persons. They are made in the image of God too, just as much as you and me. It doesn't mean we roll over or we give approval to sin, but it means that every human being is worthy of honor, respect, and dignity because they're made in the image of God. I ask you to consider who do you struggle to honor as being made in the image of God? How might acknowledging they are made in the image of God change the way you treat them? As previously mentioned, we fail to live up to this great plan God has laid out. But Jesus doesn't. And that's why we can find joy in this psalm. He is the better him. And we see this laid out in Hebrews chapter 2, where the author of Hebrews shows how Jesus fulfills Psalm 8. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 5. It says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That was a lot of text. But basically, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the better him who fulfills God's great plan for mankind. Jesus was made a little lower than angels, even though he was God. This shows his humility in that he take, took on a human form. But we also see that the world to come is subjected to him. He's God. Therefore, Jesus being fully man and fully God, and that matters because it's the only way this promise is going to be fulfilled. God's promise was that man, a human being, would rule over the earth in a way that reflected God's rule over the universe, showing his glory for all to see. And we fail 
to honor God in this way. But Jesus doesn't. He rules over creation as God intended, and he will fully one day. We can see this in verse 8. It says, We do not see everything in subjection to, subjection to him. This is the already, but the not yet that Christians live in every day. Jesus has already tasted death for everyone, you and me included, if you believe in Christ. So that if you've put your faith in Christ, your past, your present, and your future sins are forgiven, nailed on the cross. No one can take that away from you. That is amazing. Can I get an amen? But the not yet. We struggle in this world. There's pain in this world. There's heartbreak in this world. It's because it's broken. It's fallen. It's filled with sin. And so that's why we look forward to the day where Jesus returns. Because in that day, all tears will be wiped away. And Christ will reign over the new earth as God intended. And we will get to marvel in the fullness of God's majesty. So, in closing, who are we that God would care for us? We are no one. Yet, God, being gracious, blesses us with the gift of his creation and the greatest gift of his son, Jesus Christ. I invite you to marvel in the majesty of God in creation, but ultimately, I invite you to marvel in the majesty of Jesus. That he is so big and he is so wide that he can cover the gap between your sins and a holy God. Marvel in Jesus because he is majestic. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are majestic. You are majestic in this beautiful world that we find ourselves in. You are majestic in that you have made us in your image. We are crowned with glory and honor, Lord. And we acknowledge that we're unworthy. God, I pray that you would show us how majestic you are in Jesus and how wide you have to be in order to cover the gap between us and you, God. I pray that we would marvel in you, Jesus, because you are majestic. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.